All right. So questions are up on the screen. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. This, this morning we'll be starting uh, chapter 3 and we'll be spending a couple weeks in, in chapter 3. Um, so as we move right along in our exposition through the Gospel of Luke and now getting into chapter 3, we've moved past the, the, the birth narratives and the growing up narratives of Jesus and, and John and we're now proceeding into the, the ministries of John and Jesus. And as we know from previous study in chapter 1, we know the purpose of John's ministry. Excuse me, the purpose of John's ministry was described to us by the angel Gabriel to his father, Zechariah, and then Zechariah later then prophesied who his son would be as he is coming before uh, the Lord's Messiah. And so we know who is coming. We know who is coming. And we know John is just a, a pointer to the one who is who is coming. Now, what I want you to understand, and what I, one of the things that I want you to understand as a church, and as we look at this scripture, I want us to be okay with the idea that when we read the Bible, that the Bible is hard. Like, number one, it, it's, it's hard to understand sometimes, isn't it? I mean, if, you've, if you have a reading plan that you read through scripture and you get to say, well, I, I don't know, Jeremiah... And you just start to think, what am I reading? What is going on here? Right? I know I want to be reading it. This is God's Word. I'm sorry, but what is this? So, so we, we have that idea. The, the Bible's hard, right? And it should continue to challenge us to press in to know the Scripture. But on another sense, the idea of where the Bible's hard is that there are some really hard teachings. There's some really hard teachings that the Bible shows us. And there can be some difficult places where, where we read the Scripture and it just flat out hurts to read. Because if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, the, the discernment hits us and the Holy Spirit just kind of shows us and, and just kind of points out this area and says, see that? You see that? The Bible's hard. In fact, the, in fact, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit. Right? I mean, it, it uses that language very intentionally. Very intentionally about, about a sword that pierces. Right? I've, never been, I've never been stabbed by a spear. I've never been stabbed by a knife. Right? I've never been slashed by those things. I have been poked with like pencils and you know poked in the eye by my kids and my wife sometimes with her wedding ring will like scratch me and stuff like that. Right? But but I have never been pierced. And but you can imagine the pain. Or you can just kind of think about the pain. And that's what the word of God does. It it cuts us. It it cuts deep. I mean we reading from James chapter one, that cuts deep. It cuts deep into us, and I think one of these passages here in Luke chapter 3 is one of those passages that, that John the Baptist, as he's speaking and preaching, he is cutting deep into Israel. He's cutting deep into, into the Jews. And John confronts his hearers this morning, as you know from the questions, you can kind of catch where we're going now. He cuts them pretty deep on the idea of repentance on the ideas of, of repentance. A very familiar word to us. We, we use it often. We use it almost weekly. And we all have the same shared assumed idea, which is really good. 
We all have a good, right definition. We've been hammering that since we've, since we've uh, uh, came together. We've been hammering the idea of what it means to repent and for Christians to repent. We all have the same definition. To turn away from something, in this sense, we are turning away from sin and we're turning toward something else. We're turning toward God. So repentance is that, that U-turn picture, right? But we're not just turning away from sin, but we're turning toward God. We have not just been saved from sin, but we've been saved to something, and that's God. So repentance is the, the act of obedience and following Christ, turning away from sin, right? We're, we're catching that, right? Of what we understand sin, or we understand what repentance to be. But just because we know something, and we know this in life, that just because we know something or we know about something, that doesn't mean that we actually practice it, does it? Right? I mean, we're, we, we try not to be hypocrites, but we're all hypocrites on some level, right? Some, some level we say that we do, but we just don't kind of level up exactly. Our statement of faith actually defines repentance for us in a very great way, repentance and faith. And in speaking of when we repent and respond in faith, uh, it says this, it says, We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties, and they're also inseparable graces. Right? We, we repent because God has given us faith. They're inseparable. And we repent every day because we have faith. We're believing. We're trusting in the mercies and the grace of God. As it says here, it says, Wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, our danger and helplessness, and of the way of salvation of Christ. We turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time receiving the Lord Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, and rely on Him alone as our all-sufficient Savior. That's good. That is a good definition of, of, of repentance and faith. It's very precise. It's very helpful. And when we believe this and we confess our sins and we hold dear to these things as members of Sovereign Grace Church, we begin to see the joy of what it means to repent and what it means to have faith. So then what does it seem about repentance, though, that just seems so difficult? Or in many cases, just seems to be flat out ignored and not practiced by professing Christians, including believing a point in our statement of faith such as that. And what we know, and what we've been talking about, and what we studied, even in Hosea, that what we, what we know the reality is, is that if a person is not repenting, or if a Christian, I'm using it loosely here, is not repenting, or they're unrepentant, they're not marked with humility, which is a mark of Christ a mark of grace, a mark of love. And if, if they're not repenting, then they're not going to be marked with the humility that's going to bring them to give grace and love to others. Right? Why? For not walking in humility, not walking in repentance. How is it that such a common Christian word has become so non-important and so unpracticed or so indifferent to? And see, this is the heart of our passage this morning. And, and, and this is what John is going after in, in, in Israel. 
He's, he's going after them in their lack of repentance. And we're going to define that and show that a little bit more. In fact, he's so stern with his warning. In verse, I don't think I wrote it down, uh, verse 6, 9. Yeah, verse 9. In verse 9, he says, he says that to Israel, the, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. I mean, we can understand. We can see that. If you ever chop down a tree and cut it down with a chainsaw and then try to pull the root out or pull the stump out, that's a hard process. Because not only you have to dig it out, but you have, to, you have to sever those roots. And what's happening is what he's saying to us and us, our modern minds, is that my truck is chained up to the thing and it's tight right now and somebody's back there hitting those, hitting those roots and it's about ready to pop. The axe is laid to the root. This is so serious. And so we're go- where we're going to go today is we're going to see from John that repentance is the hard work of not just turning from our sin, but actually pursuing righteousness that bears fruit. That bears fruit. And then at the end, I want to show you that our repentance is not just our duty as Christians to turn away from sin, but it's also a duty of delight and joy. That repentance is where we will find joy, and we can walk in it. So let's look at our Bibles, let's look to Luke chapter 3 right now, starting in verse 1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of your guess is good as mine, and Traconius and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall cease the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to take these stones and raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And we, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from, any, from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Amen. So we see here as our passage starts out by setting the historical context. And we're just going to take a few minutes doing that 
for our type A'ers out there that like to know the context and where we're going. So, so we're roughly uh, 18 years-ish from what we talked about last week, Jesus 12 years old in the temple, and we have the, uh, the, de- the date set up for us 15 years in the, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, right? Tiberius uh, Caesar. And we have all of this historical information and all these names of all these leaders given to us because it shows us how God is sovereignly working and acting throughout history. We, we've talked about that. We mentioned that uh, when we were talking about chapter 2. And right here again, the historical details should just, just kind of baffle us. That Luke get, was able to accurately pinpoint so much for us so that we can see this detail, so that we can be certain, again, in such truth and such, such fact, and to give us also the backdrop of the historical context of what's taking, uh, taking place in this time as John the Baptist and Jesus uh, come on the scene. So as Jesus and John were born under the reign of Caesar Augustus, a great Roman empire, or emperor, 30 years ago, but now 15 years into the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he was not a very good emperor. In fact, he was kind of characterized as being severe and being cruel, and it was a downward spiral after Augustus as they just got worse and worse and worse. Because if you remember in Augustus is when they begin calling him, uh, they begin calling him a god. And so what does men do when they start thinking themselves to be god? They take the persona of it. And with that power, with that authority, he acted it out, and it just continued to get, to get worse and worse in their cruelty. But remember, all of these evil men, and all leaders and all authority, even in our days, they're all just pawns in the hands of God, like water in his hands. He sovereignly acts in all of them. And so when Augustus died in 14 AD, here our story takes place, in 29 A.D. Now we have some more names. We see for the first time Pontius Pilate. Right? We, we know Pontius Pilate. We, we know Pontius Pilate from the story. And he, he, he lets us know that, that he was ruling here and he's been ruling in the time all the way up until Jesus' death on the cross. He was appointed governor over Judea. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was governor of Judea. When he died... His four sons, or his three sons, took over. One of them was a moron, treated the people poorly, and Rome kicked him out and brought in Pontius Pilate. That's why the other ones are in different areas, and they're called tetrarchs and not governors. So here we are in this place, terrible, corrupt, political atmosphere. We also have the names of the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Jew, the Jewish history, or at least in the law, there's only supposed to be one high priest. Now, how is there two, right? Like, what in, what in the world happened here? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Ananias ticked off Rome. He made Rome mad. And so Rome removed him. And somehow, Annas had enough clout that he appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, then to be the high priest. So who do you think was really the high priest? And before Rome, it was Caiaphas, but in the back door, it was Annas. And we saw how that worked out in the plot to kill Jesus, didn't we? So here we have the, the, the corruption again, the deception, the sinfulness, the, the nepotism. This is the backdrop in which we see John the Baptist, the prophet of God, coming before 
the Son of God, to proclaim. And John comes on the scene like, like no one other. I mean, he comes on just like a, just like a prophet. I mean, we, we saw long hair, wearing animal skins, he eats bugs. I mean, this guy was peculiar. And he lived in the desert. He lived in the wilderness. But what was the message that John preached? John preached the message according to verse 3. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance to the forgiveness of our sins. This was the message that John was preaching. Baptism and forgiveness. Now, to our, to our 21st century ears, and we've, we've been around Christianity enough, where we hear baptism, and that's not really too offensive. It's becoming offensive to our world, but to us it's not too offensive. To the first century Jew, to tell them and to proclaim, you got to be baptized, was highly offensive to them. And here's why. The only people that were baptized in the first century were Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, not only did they have to confess the things of Judaism and believe the law and then start following the law, and if it was a male, they needed to be circumcised, and if they survived that process, then they had to be baptized, which was a ceremonial cleansing of all their Gentileness, and then become a Jew, and still yet they really weren't treated as one of them. So can you imagine a Gentile or a, a, a Jew, a prophet of God, uh, John, telling the Jews who were, who were righteous in themselves and in their lineage and their own, just because of who I am, because of my, my DNA, you're telling me I need to be ceremonial cleansed? And John says, yep, and you need to repent. A huge offense. Huge offense to their righteous chosen people of God. So let's also be also clear about this message because I want us to be theologically correct. John was not preaching a repentance and a baptism and a forgiveness of sin that is different or opposing to the, to the baptism and the forgiveness of sin and the repentance that we know. And here's what I mean. He's not saying that baptism brings the forgiveness of sin. There are some denominations that have split off that we know that that's what they believe. You must be baptized to be saved. We don't believe that. Even as Baptists, we don't believe that. That's in our name. We don't believe it, that. Baptism does not save. And that's not what John is saying here either. If that's the case, then what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. Nobody was rushing to throw water on him. To baptize him quickly. Jesus wasn't telling, John, go baptize this guy so he can come with me to paradise and... No. Baptism does not bring the forgiveness of sin. But what baptism is, as we believe it and as we see it, what John is preaching here, is baptism follows a person's repentance as a sign of their forgiveness of sin and repentance. You understand the difference there? Did y'all catch that? That baptism follows a person's repentance because baptism is a sign that forgiveness of sin really has taken place because we've seen them repent. And therefore we baptize. So in calling people to repent, turning away from their sin, and then to accept baptism is an indication that they had repented. And so we must also see here that even repentance 
Even repentance is a, the, the human work of turning away from our sin still does not merit the favor, the forgiveness of God. God doesn't look at your penance and look at your turning away from sin and say, oh, okay, now I'm going to save that person. No. The order is, is that we have been forgiven of our sins, we repent, and then we are baptized. So we just understand the order that is being taught here to us. So baptism is an outward sign of an inward work of the Holy Spirit in his work of regeneration. And, and, and just kind of as a, as a side note, just to kind of help thrust that, every time we repent as Christians now is once again that inward sign of the Holy Spirit's work of transformation and regeneration in our hearts. How encouraging. And, and I'm just kind of stole away my joy point here. Because that produces joy. That, that just drives us right to the grace and mercy of God and thank Him once again. So you skip and put that one down. Just kind of. So simply put, no, no amount of repentance can ever earn the forgiveness in the sight of God, but rather we have been forgiven, therefore we repent. And we sing songs that teach this, not the song not in me. No list of sins I have done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of truth can justify a single wrong. The song Rock of Ages. They're, these two songs are so close, it's amazing. Not the labors of my hands can, can, can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This is, it gets even better. I think this is verse 3. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. That's because we cling to grace. And repentance is the outward sign of one who has received the forgiveness of mercy, forgiveness and grace and mercy of God. So without repentance, no one is saved, right? Because once again, it's, the, it's the, what marks the work of grace. It's what marks the work of God's grace working in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance run side by side, parallel together. No one is saved if they've never repented of their sin. I don't care what you claim. I don't care what you say. And that's what John's message here is. If there is no repentance of sin, you can say whatever you want. But if it doesn't line up, then you are not a Christian. Later we'll encounter 1 John chapter 2. And John tells the, the church, he says, if, if you say you know Christ, you know the Lord, and yet you do not follow His commandments, then you are deceived. But if we are walking in repentance, it continually proves and shows the evidences of grace of God's work in our lives. So here's John preaching this message in the wilderness to God's people. Preaching and proclaiming this message through the power of the Spirit. So our passage continues. Let's just continue to unpack it. I'm going to throw my points in as we go. Is, is our passage continues and it shows us that repentance renews us. That repentance renews us. As it continues, John uh, uh, prophesies, in a, uh, John was the fulfillment of a prophecy, rather, from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 3 through 5. You see that? You can kind of see your Bible kind of quoting it right there, can't you? 
And, and, and this is what he says. Look at verse 4. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was preparing the way for Jesus. John's task of proclaiming repentance was preparing the way for Jesus. So everywhere, everywhere our president travels, everywhere he goes, no matter, no matter where he goes, every step, every detail, every logistical contingency is thought out and planned completely as possible as much as a human can do. And if, in, fact, in fact, in some cases, when the president goes overseas and he makes these trips overseas, right, when he does that, there's people that have gone before, Secret Service and, and, and staffers, White House staffers and security teams, would go to those areas months in advance. Isn't that crazy to think about? Months in advance. To plan out to look at every route, every hotel room, to, to unpack all the security issues that might be a problem, to check out restaurants, airports, whatever it is, wherever the president will go so that the number one priority is safe. They prepare the way for the president's visit. And this is John's role. John's role is preparing the people and his way of preparing for, for Christ is to make their paths, make Christ's path straight, is to preach a message of repentance. And he's like a, like a road builder, right? This path is a great highway of repentance. It's a, it's a great highway of, of repentance where, where he, as you can see from our passages, where, where repentance just flattens mountains and it raises the valleys so that the path is as straight as possible. You see that? It almost looks like Jesus kind of like, uh, just kind of is like a big bulldozer and just kind of levels everything. And, and this is what this means. This is what it means when he's talking about repentance in this, in this way. When he says that every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. This is what this means. Is that by the cross and by the power of the gospel, the deep valleys, right? You see where the deep valleys are going to be made level and brought up? These deep valleys that are going to be made level by the power of the gospel and by the power of the cross, these are the, the deep, dark places in our hearts and in our lives that we just do not go. And so the power of the gospel is meant to scoop down and go into those, those real tender places of our soul, all the way down to the, the baseline, the very foundation of our hearts, and, and causes us and brings us to repent over those things. It brings those things to the surface. It also humbles us. This is what it means about knocking the mountains down. It humbles us. It brings us low. Repentance humbles us. Because that's when we, we see, we confess, we recognize, and we turn from our sin to the beauty of Christ. See, this is where we tend to believe repentance is just negative. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons why we don't repent very often. Because we just don't want to deal with our sin. The problem is, is the gospel deals with it. The gospel addresses it. The gospel digs down deep into the, into the, the very pits of our hearts and in the high places of our self-righteousness, and it just flats us. And it lays us up. And it tells us that the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become, become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
I don't know about you, but I have some rough places in my life. I have, I have some rough places in, in, in my heart and in my life, and they are just plain rough. They are not smooth. It's like an unsanded piece of furniture. Try sitting on it. No good. But this is the promise of the gospel, that all of those rough places, hear me, brothers and sisters, I know Lydia's being very obstinate today. Praise God for children. But those rough places in our hearts, those rough places in our lives, those things that you're kind of feeling the pressure of even today, maybe the anger, maybe it's lust, maybe it's whatever it is, uh, anxiety, pressure, stress, whatever those things are, those rough places in our life, we can trust in the promise that those things are going to be made level. Those things are going to be, those things are being, they're being made level, and maybe that's why it hurts, because they're being exposed, and they're being exposed so that they can be renewed and brought to life and be brought to day, brought, bringing those things into the, into the daylight. And I'm not saying that this is an easy work. In fact, this is an extremely difficult work. I mean, actually addressing my anger issues is tough. Addressing my other issues is tough. I don't want to deal with them. But the Spirit of God does. But look what the promise is. It's not to expose them and to draw them out to to leave you dry and to leave you hanging and just to poke fun at you. No, it's to renew So that flattening that takes place, that feels like a punch in the gut by the Holy Spirit, is made to renew us. It's made to bring us back to joy. He knows what he's doing. And brothers and sisters, this is a lifelong process. That's why we sing verses in those songs that we sing, like at the end when we talk about Jesus returning and what we're hoping for. Because it's like this ongoing road construction where the guys can never get the road level. But Jesus, thankfully not like the road construction workers of Georgia or any other state, it's not just Georgia, he knows what he's doing. And the Holy Spirit is smoothing us out. And praise God when we can look back and we can say, man, I'm glad that pothole's gone. Right, so, so you people who live on dirt roads, like you know what I'm talking about. Like you just kind of long for the, the time of the month or the time of the year when, the, when they come out and scrape the roads because the washboards are like destroying your car and it takes twice as long to get to your house. Man, think about that. Think about how the Holy Spirit is doing that. And the way that we are renewed is through repentance. It's through repentance. It's confessing our sin and turning from our sin and fighting the the good fight and being renewed. So it's not easy, it's not fun, it's quite painful, but here it's renewing. We sin, we fall, we fail, but in God's kindness He is calling us to repentance daily to turn from our lust, to turn from our pride, to turn from our anger, to turn from our anxieties and fears and our fear of man and to turn toward Christ and to press forward. Not wallow in sin and guilt and shame, but daily turning to Christ. So that first one, repentance renews us. Second one, repentance exposes us. And we've kind of been talking a little bit about that. 
And you see this in verse 7. I mean, just... I would never do this because I love you guys. But look how John opens up his sermon here. Like, have you ever heard of a sermon like that, like the intro? You brood of vipers! Who warned you to come to church to hear about the gospel to be saved? What a message, huh? Now, I don't like being called a snake because I don't like snakes. I just don't. But once again, kind of like the baptism thing, uh, being called a viper as a Jew is kind of not a good thing either. And the reason is is because they, they, they know where the, the, the serpent is, right? The serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And so when they're calling him a brood of vipers, he says, you sons of the devil. You, you sons of the devil. And his rhetorical question, who warned you to flee from the, from the wrath to, to come? It's a rhetorical question because the people were flocking to this crazy guy in the wilderness who was prophesying, preaching the gospel to them in such ways, but yet they still were coming. And so he knew, he's saying, you know, you know that judgment is coming. That's why you're here. You brood of vipers. <laughs> Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we've been talking about this. And what he's saying here is, is, is that no matter what you say, no matter what you say you, you, you believe, even if you say I repent or I confess or I turn, but if you're not bearing the fruit of repentance, and as he says that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. You see, one of the things that we've missed, I think in our definition of, of repentance is the very fact that repentance produces fruit. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes in our, in our third point. There's always objective evidences to repentance. When we repent, there's objective evidence that proves that we've repented. Does that make sense? I mean, if, we've, if, we're, if we're dealing with this, if this is the sin, then, then there's an objective evidence that I've actually turned from that sin and turned toward Christ. Not just our words, but objective evidences that we've turned toward the Lord. And so this is why John is exposing to them that there's no objective evidences in your heart, Israel, that you repented. You go to the temple, you do the acts of repentance, but you're not repenting. And so he says in verse 8, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, for, able from these stones to raise up children of uh, children for Abraham. And so, not only did John attack their cleanliness and baptism and calling them sons of the devil, but then he goes right after their assurance, their false assurance. You see, the Jews, they figured out in their system of religion, and we saw this uh, prophesied against in Hosea, they figured out in their, in their work of religion to, to say, okay, so here's how it goes, Right? God made promises to Abraham. And God made a promise that we were going to be his people. And God never fails. God never does not keep his promises. He doesn't, he doesn't lie. So logically, what does that mean? That means it doesn't matter what I do. I'm good. As long as I do what I'm supposed to do, I'm good. So here's the heart of man. This, this is us here. Listen, they do the bare minimum. They get by. I mean, we do this in school, right? You mean, remember, uh, uh, D's are degrees, right? You remember that? D's equal degrees. And they don't equal very much after that, but what a waste, right? What a waste of money. But anyways, I mean, th this was their whole motive. 
I'm just going to do the very minimum to get by. The problem is, is what John tells him is, Jesus ain't going to be like that. You see, what you've completely ignored is that God knows your heart. God is not merely pleased by, our, by outward things, but he's pleased by the inward workings of our heart, the obedience of our hearts. And so when the Jews, they would think by their own DNA, by their own lineage that God owed them, I'm a child of, of Abraham, and so they would sing the song, Father Abraham, someone would say, repent, and they'd go, no, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. They'd sing the little song, and they'd teach their kids, this is how you get by in the Jewish religion, kids. Sing this song and believe this. And John's saying, no, no. They took God and they shaped him into being a small piece of their lives. The small piece of their lives of of the law, of temple worship, and God was only just culture and tradition to them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This This is what we would call nominal Christianity or popular religion. And the problem is it doesn't work that way. Because we cannot put Jesus or God into our debt. We cannot make it where God owes us at at all. Because this is what John says. If that's what you're trusting in, guess what? God can take these rocks and he can turn them into sons of Abraham. Meaning us. Took stones and turned us into sons of Abraham. We are more sons of Abraham than 99% of all Jews. Being grafted in is a whole lot more. Because what is it? The axe is laid to the tree. The axe is laid to to the root. We cannot put God into our debt. God cannot be fooled. So this idea of judgment is coming. And to those who have not truly repented, they're exposed as, as frauds. And it doesn't matter your, your lineage. It doesn't matter your, your works. It's all it is that we must abide in Christ. John 15 teaches us, it says, I am the vine, and the true, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear much fruit goes on, Jesus continues in verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, burned. If you abide in me, and in my words are in you, and ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. You know, oh so often how we have taken Christianity and kind of turned it into this. Just speak words. We, we, we take our traditions of religion and our own self-righteousness of works and we, 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 we created this weird checkoff list of, of just doing the bare minimum to get by. Mm, that just, I mean, just thinking, I mean, what a mockery of grace. In fact, we have a term for it. It's called cheap grace. 
We've turned, we've turned Christianity into a transaction, right? As if we're going to Walmart. We give them money, they give us a product. And we've turned the salvation God into the, to the same kind of transaction of praying a prayer, accepting, walking forward, getting baptized. That that's my due. That's what I did. I repent, I repent one time with my, with my words. That's all I do. And now God owes me salvation. God gives me now salvation like a transaction. And the problem is, is that's not Christianity. Christianity is not a transaction, but Christianity is about regeneration. It's about regeneration that, that brings us into intimate, deep relationship with God that results in continual transformation. Do you see the difference? I'm not saying that's maybe where your, your Christianity might have started in, in praying. I prayed a prayer, and I was baptized, but it was because, I did that because of regeneration. And that regeneration has played itself out in continual transformation as the Spirit of God has been working on me, and every sin and everything is being rooted out, and those rough edges are being smoothed out. And everywhere I turn, I feel like I got you know, one edge smooth, turn around, nope, that one's still rough. Here we go, start it over again. And God in His grace has just walked and walked through us. But so Christianity is not a transaction like the Jews treated it. Like nominal Christianity has treated it. But Christianity is a relationship. Like we hear that, right? You, you kind of hear that. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. But it's relationship that's been built in regeneration. And when we bear the fruits of repentance, when we bear those fruits of, of, of repentance, oh, we can see the evidences of God's grace and just smile and say, there goes another hunk of wood that needs to be chipped off and smoothed out. It hurt. That one left a scar. Sin leaves scars. Actually, it leaves wounds. And the Lord heals us. Sometimes we see those scars as reminders. i got a couple of those physically on my body that reminds me of some stupid things I've done in some stupid places I shouldn't have been. So repentance renews us, repentance exposes us, and repentance produces in us. And what does it produce? It bears fruit. It bears fruit. Repentance bears fruit. It always bears fruit. And that fruit is righteousness. Obedience that leads to righteousness. One of the prayers, if you, if you picked up the... Um, the, the, the membership guide, and you still have that, and you're still keeping it. One of the prayers that we pray for one another is that we would bear fruit, that we would bear fruits of righteousness that bring glory to Christ. That's what we pray for, for uh, what we pray for one another. And so here's John's hearers, right? They hear this. They hear this message, and they, they, it's like, okay, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree, and they're just like, what do we do? Then, then, then what shall we do? What is, the, what is the repentance? And it's not the answer that we would kind of expect, is it? Because what he turns to is what does John say? John turns to works. He says, bear fruit. He, he, says, he says, because repentance bears fruit. It has evidence. It has evidence of, the, of, of saving faith. So he tells them, very practically, We'll give away your coat. You got an extra coat, you see someone cold, don't give anybody a coat right now. That's like a death sentence right now in June, and now July, right? You give someone a coat because you hate them. But come wintertime and there's someone cold and you have six coats, you can give one away. That's what he's saying. And then here comes a tax collector who came to be baptized. He told him, he said, collect no more than you're authorized to. 
Don't steal from your neighbor. Treat your neighbor like a human. Don't steal from them. And then the soldiers. Well, what do we do? I mean, if there's hope for them, what's the hope for us? Just don't, don't extort any money from people by threats or false accusations. Be content with your wages. So what we're seeing here in the very fact that repentance, as we've already defined it, it bears fruit. That's what he's getting at. It bears fruit. Repentance bears fruit. And the fruit is, is that you give away your stuff. The fruit is, is, is that you don't steal. I love the, do you, do you see the juxtaposition between the two? One of them is, is, uh, is give your stuff away, and the other one is uh, uh, don't steal. Give it and then collect it. And this is what he gets to. That it's objective evidence of God's grace and the work in us. I mean, how could we have two coats or how could we have food and just tell someone, this is what James says, is how could we just tell them that we're going to pray for them? Objective evidences of, of repentance. And he points out these places, right? He points out these, this, places of, this place of materialism and, and money and power. And, and later in verses 18 through 20, when, he, when he, we talk about how he points out inherit his sexual deviancy, these four different areas that, that at the, at the uh, most basic level of all human beings, this is where sin lies. This is like the bare, the bare part, the materialism, the money, the power, and the sex. All these things he addresses. Now clearly, hopefully, we're not stealing. Or we're not extorting people with power and taking their money. But does that mean that we're not, to take, we're not to see these things, our materialism, our, money, our stuff, our money, and the power that we have, the authority that we have? That we're not to see these things as areas where repentance can be worked out, can work itself out in? Because chances are, in these areas, this is where we are sinning. That we're sinning. These, these good things that, we're, that, we are, that we are sinning in. So for example our things, our money, our authority. Do we, do, we, do we have a generous spirit? Do we have a generous spirit? Do we, do we see that all of our possessions, clothing, our food, all of our possessions are to be used as a means for the kingdom of God? Sharing our homes, our clothes, our money, our food with others? Or do we push for more and more and then just grasp it tightly? So you can see, and just in this, this one simple area, that even though you're not a thief and you're stealing, you can see that even in the good part of this, that we can still deceptively, deceivingly, still hoard it for ourselves and act sinfully and not produce fruits of righteousness in these areas because we don't see them as being wrong. But we're not being free with them. So this is where we must evaluate. So just basic application, we must evaluate ourselves. We must evaluate ourselves. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Beloved, evaluate yourself. Evaluate. Do the difficult work of evaluating yourself. 
taking the test. Test yourself. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Study chapter 2. Take the test that John teaches there and, and, and put that into action to evaluate yourself. So the first one, application, is we must evaluate. second one is that the gospel calls us to true repentance. And the gospel also empowers us for true repentance. Because true repentance is not oriented toward me, but it's oriented toward God. Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. In your sight I have sinned. It always starts toward God and and not me. Number two, true repentance is motivated by true godly sorrow and not just because of selfish regret. Did you get get the difference there? between selfish regret and sorrow. Selfish regret is the, is the you know, uh, I'm only wrong, I'm only feeling this way because I got caught. What about when you're not, when you don't get caught? Do you repent? Is there true godly sorrow when you sin? Or have you swept it down to those baselines of your soul? 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret. I <laughs> love that. I hate regret. True repentance, number three, is concerned with the heart. It's concerned with the heart, not just our external actions, but it does prove, right? It, gives, it leads to those things, but it starts and it's concerned with our heart first. Psalm 51 again, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart. Because that's where the flesh and sin lies, and we need to apply the gospel that the gospel would work itself out in our hearts. A repentant person wants to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. That's a good line. These four points, by the way, I didn't come up with. I I took them from a book, and I'll share them with you later. They sound too good for Ben. You should have known that. Number four, look to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. Amen. Remember who we are repenting to. A good, loving Father who has freely sent His Son to die on the cross on your behalf, knowing all along that we were going to be in a mess. That we would have to repent daily, and sometimes multiple times a day. And that He is steadfast in His love, never pouring out His wrath on us because it has been satisfied perfectly in His Son. And the third, third thing of, of, uh, of application is we must always repent because it's for our joy. And we've been talking about that. I'm sorry, I know we're going a little long today. I told myself I was going to go short today too. But we must always repent even when it hurts because it's for our joy. Another, another line that I, I, learned, I picked up uh, uh, two weeks ago from someone else in the sermon I was listening to, he said that insecurity is the enemy of intimacy. Insecurity is the enemy of intimacy. When we walk in insecurity, particularly with the Lord, it's why? Because we're not repenting. We're we're not repenting. 
And so if, I'm, if, if, if I know I'm in, like when I was a kid, when I knew I was in trouble and I didn't have the guts to confess that I did something or broke something or did something I wasn't supposed to or not did something I was supposed to do, you know, if I, I would walk in insecurity with my parents just wondering when I was going to get whacked in the tail because I was disobedient. And so I was insecure. I was insecure in my relationship with my, with my parents. And so when we walk in sin and we're not repenting, whether we are indifferent toward our sin or we're intentionally refusing not to repent, we're going to walk in insecurity. And when we're walking in insecurity, it's going to be the, inti- the enemy of all intimacy with God and with each other. Maybe one of the reasons we don't want to get to know sometimes each other is because we're insecure. We don't know how we stand with one another. How we stand with the Lord. And and this is such good news to realize this. That repentance, yes, is hard. It's difficult. We don't want to admit that we've sinned. And we don't then want to make it right. But oh, the joy that we can walk in. And guess what? Hearing this now, if you need to repent, guess what? The joy is, and the good news is, you can repent. The axe hasn't hit the root yet for you. You can repent. We can repent to each other. We can confess our sins to one another. We can confess and repent to others. Not not just if we've offended them, but also we can confess and repent to each other. And just confessing, just being transparent. I think that transparency with one another in our sin is a, is a good thing. It's dragging that sin into the light and say, this, here it is. If this is the deepest, darkest about me, and if I brought it into the light, what can anybody accuse me of? What can I be accused of? I'm not hiding anything. And repentance exposes and renews that. So closing, brothers and sisters, friends, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, let's repent of our sin. Let's make it a, 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 a delightful duty of ours to repent, to stop hiding, to stop running, to stop ignoring, to stop downplaying our sin and bear the fruits of, of the righteousness of Christ in our hearts so that as we can look back to verse 6, turn back in your Bibles, look at verse 6 again. And look at the promise here. So that and all flesh will see the salvation of God. You know what that means? That as we are repentant, even in our failures, even in our failures, that salvation is that they'll see Christ, Jesus, God saves. Don't be afraid to repent. It's good. Confess your sin. As 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that through us, all flesh, the world, will see your salvation. They will see Christ. Through the fruits of our repentance, Lord, let us be a humble people that repent. And as we respond now, let us respond in love and kindness toward one another. Thank you for your grace and your mercy you have given to us in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.